No, uh, you know, it's, it is an exciting time in the life of our church. You know, we are very young in what we do, and um, God has been so faithful to us. We've been in existence now really for, well, as a church, for coming up on a year um, over Thanksgiving, um, but really as a community for, for quite a bit longer than that. And God has been slowly kind of developing us and pushing us and challenging us. And this space for us really is a, uh, it's a picture of God's faithfulness. It's got a lot of uh, things that we love and a lot of things that, that we wish were a little bit different, but it gives us the opportunity to do some really amazing things in our neighborhood. And, and ultimately, we want it to be a launching place for us to be able to go from here and step into the world and begin to live literally as the hands and feet of Christ. And so this isn't a destination point for us. It's a, a place where we go out from. And so we're super excited about what God is doing here. We're really, really, really grateful for what this community has allowed us to do. As of this past Thursday, we have raised in the rough kind of area of $63,000 to cover our expenses. And it looks like our expenses, instead of the 80, we're going to be able to keep them down to right at 70. And so it was just an unbelievable kind of experience. So, um, man, God has been so faithful there. So we're really, really blessed. So all that to say, we've been kind of preaching over the past few, uh, really the past couple of months about our mission and our direction. And so we're, we're going to be stepping into something new um, today, kind of today for, for quite a while. And, and I love preaching through and teaching through scripture. I don't really love teaching or preaching topically. And, and topical preaching is really um, kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's preaching that takes a, a topic or an idea and explores it. So, you know, uh, you know, how to have a happy life, how to not be mad at your enemies, how to fix your marriage, all those kind of things. And there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with topical preaching. Um, it's a dangerous line sometimes preachers walk when they preach through topics because then the, the, the kind of uh, the, the move is to take scripture then and, and apply it to what you're teaching or to try and sprinkle it through and, and it gets kind of difficult. Before you know it, if you're not careful, you're preaching topics and you're not preaching scripture and the next thing you know you don't need your Bible and then you're just kind of down a road where we're here to entertain people. And, 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 and certainly I've preached topically and we'll do it again in the future, but it's not my heartbeat. My love is to preach and teach through scripture. And as a church, our heartbeat, I think, and I'd like to say that our heartbeat through our teaching is that we are very word-centric, okay? So we're word-centered. We are centered around our desire to unpack Scripture together. Um, In fact, if there's ever a Sunday or a series of Sundays where you walk out of here and you're like, wow, man, I, I guess I don't need my Bible this week, I'm seriously telling you to leave. I mean, don't come back. Go find a church where the pastor preaches Scripture and he preaches truth. If we ever stop doing that, just go. I mean, it's not worth your time. And I have college kids all the time that leave uh, their, their home church, and, they, and I did college ministry for years and years. And they say, I'm looking for a church in the new city that I've, that I've shown up to go to college at. What should I look for? And my answer is always the same. Just find a church that preaches the word. Everything else will fall into place because when we come face-to-face with God's word, it changes, radically changes the way that we see the world. And if a church is preaching scripture, then the chances are other things in that church's life will follow. Um, But it never works the other way around. And so I always tell them, find a church. So if we ever get to that place where something we're not doing, just go. Go find a a better church. There's there's probably uh, better ones. And I'll tell you this about our church. I mean, I'm not a a great preacher. I'm probably not even a, a good preacher. And you can certainly go anywhere else and, and find better preaching or more entertaining preaching. But what we're going to be able to do over the next few weeks is, is really what my heartbeat is, which is take, a, take Scripture and begin to work through it together and unpack it. And I believe that when we open Scripture together and we begin to teach through it and work through it and work through the lines and all the things that, that maybe we want to dodge in there and don't and like to skip over, but we've got to deal with because if we're going line by line by line, we're going to end up coming in contact with it, kind of like we did with the book of James. When we begin to really do that as a church, God will radically interrupt, interrupt our lives and begin to 
transform us. And I believe a church that dissects and spends time in, in God's word together is a church that God will use to change the world. Because at the end of the day, any real preacher, any real preacher, their goal should not be to entertain you for half an hour, to make you laugh, to make you cry, um, to make you walk out of here and go, well, that's the first person that never put me to sleep while I was preaching. That should never be any real preacher's goal, right, should be to introduce you to God's word. That's it. That is all the goal of a preacher should do is to introduce you to God's word. Because if I can introduce you to God's word, right, God will move in you and he will use his word to change you. Because an interaction with God's word is an interaction with God himself. That's what we, we believe to be scripture to be that true. So all that to simply say, what we're going to get to do over the next few weeks is open up the book of Philippians together and have this encounter with God's word. And it's not always going to be pretty because there's things in Scripture that we really, there's a couple of verses that we really want to hop over because we don't know what to do with them. Well, we're going to have to deal with them and we'll have to teach through them and explore them together. And the the book of Philippians is probably one of the books in the Bible, one of the letters in the Bible that has torn me up the most over the years. And, And in a really good way because what Paul's challenging this little group of believers in the city of Philippi to do, what he's challenging them to do is to rethink the idea of what it means to be alive. That somehow waking up in the morning and drawing breath is actually not the definition of what living really is. But he's challenging this little group of believers that if if through joy and courage and obedience and faithfulness, that if they come face to face with those things and they allow God to begin to penetrate their lives and move through them, whether in life or death, they live for his glory, they begin to step into life that's truly alive. And so we're going to get to look at that together. Because I believe for us too, there's more to this life for you and I than simply drawing breath, going to work, coming home, loving our kids. That God has a bigger picture for our lives than that. And we're going to step into it as we begin to open this book together. And this morning, we're going to kind of look through the introduction. Um, it's, uh, it's actually 11 verses. Paul's really good at doing massive introductions to letters. And so we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. So if you've got a Bible, that's right there. If you don't, didn't bring yours, we have them right here. If you don't own one, please keep this one. It's yours. Uh, we want you to have it. Um, a little gift from us to you. It's only $1.99. It's not that much, but, you know, something. And, and Tom paid for them anyway, so. Um, <laughs> So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and find Philippians chapter 1. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll kind of open, open it up together. God, I, uh, I do thank you for this church. I thank you, God, for the love that um, these folks have, well, for you first, and for each other, and for the world. Um, God, I, I love the fact that this is the church that I've always wanted to be a part of, and that you've, you've allowed us to begin to grow it together. Uh, the journey that we're on is an amazing one. It's one that we have no idea where it leads and uh, frankly, just don't really care. I just want to follow you. And so God, make us a, a community that follows you and, and that opens your word together and help us over the next weeks as we wrestle and fight with and struggle and love through the book of Philippians, God, to uh, redefine our heart on what it means to truly live, both as a church and as individual followers of Christ. Turn our lives and our families and our community upside down. Take a moment and just pray in your own heart. Just ask God to teach you this morning. Just ask him to, to open your heart to something new. Just whisper that to the Lord. And pray for someone beside you. Um, even if you don't know their name, just pray um, that God would move in them this morning. I say this every week, but just be in the habit of praying for um, other people. So pray that for someone.
Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would change our hearts. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. It is living and active. And so, Father, we pray that you would move in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we uh, kind of dive into those first few verses, let me give you just a little bit of background about the, the city and the letter and kind of what's going on in, 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 the, in the time. Um, Philippi is the name of the city. The Philippians are the name of the people. So it's the Philippians are a group of gathered believers, a very small group of believers in a city called Philippi. And Philippi was a very important city. It was actually a Roman colony, um, which meant that at some point in time, the Roman Empire had conquered it and taken it over, and not just simply put troops there um, to kind of occupy it, but they had taken it as their own. And so the people in Philippi were Roman citizens as well as citizens of the city of Philippi. And they actually um, took this very seriously. The, the, the people in Philippi loved that designation because with Rome came culture, um, came advancement, and so... As Roman citizens, uh, they were entitled to all kinds of great benefits. We actually talked a little bit about the, uh, this a few weeks ago when we talked about Paul and his journey to Rome and the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen and that had certain privileges that went with it, right? He couldn't be wrongly imprisoned or beaten or those kind of things. He had rights as a Roman citizen. Well, the Philippians had rights and they were, they were a Roman colony and they took it really seriously. They dressed like Romans. A lot of them even spoke Latin, which was kind of a big deal because Philippi was about 600 miles away from Rome, which back in those days, might as well have been the other end of the earth. I mean, if you're going to say, hey, we're going to walk to Rome, 600 miles, I mean, you're talking months of journey, right? So it was a long way away, and the Roman Empire was massive, but it was a Roman colony nonetheless, and it was a very strategic city. Maybe it was, I really think it was probably one of the most important cities in all of Macedonia, because it sat on a very important highway. Uh, Latin, the name was the Via Ignatia, which is the Ignatian Way. And it was a highway that connected all the eastern Roman colonies and provinces all the way to Rome. And it was miles and miles and miles long. It was a trade route. And it's actually really famous. You may actually have heard that from history classes you had in, in high school or, or wherever. But the Ignatian Way was a, a very famous thoroughfare that ran across the entire Balkan Peninsula, right to the ocean, and then ferries would basically shuttle you over to the mainland and then right up to Rome. And Philippi sat right on that highway. And so it was a, a very kind of strategic trade route and cultural route and all kinds of new religions and things were going on. And people wanted to, I mean, it was, it was like a happening place uh, really to be culturally. So in that city of Philippi, um, there, there wasn't a lot of, uh, of kind of, e- there was actually no Christian activity and very few very little Jewish activity. And you got to remember, back in those days, until Paul showed up with the gospel somewhere, there was no Christianity. So Christianity began here at the cross, right, where Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and it expanded like this. And it expanded because men and women like Paul, all right, decided that they were going to say yes to the Lord, and they began to expand and take the gospel into the world. And so Paul went on at least three missionary journeys that we know of where he sailed around the world or the known world and he'd walk into a city and he'd begin to teach and preach about Jesus and people that responded to that message were the first converts in that city. So for us, it's kind of a a crazy notion because everywhere we go in America, you're going to bump into hundreds of churches. I mean, Oklahoma City has 1,671 churches in our city. I mean, that is amazing. These are places that you would show up and there wasn't one Christian, not only any churches, but there wasn't another believer. And so what Paul would do and kind of what his kind of um, 
the way he would approach a city is he'd show up in a city like Philippi and he'd go straight to the temple because he knew there that he would find the Jewish people and he knew that the Jewish people would be a launching place to begin to have the conversation about God because they believed in the one true God. And so Paul would start there and as that became kind of an uproar and people began to hear the Gentiles mixed in, the next thing you know, Paul's got these huge crowds where he's talking to people about the one true God and then introducing Jesus Christ. Well, this is what Paul did everywhere he went. Well, when Paul shows up in Philippi, and we learn all this in the book of Acts, when Paul shows up in Philippi, he, there is no temple because there's not enough Jewish people to even warrant the building of a temple. So Jerusalem had not kind of commissioned a temple being built in Philippi because there's only a handful of Jewish people. So really Paul's in an environment where no one's familiar with anything that he has to say. So everything he does is new. And in Acts chapter 16, we learn this, that Paul showed up in Philippi, and when he found out there wasn't a temple there, he asked around and found out that there was a group of people that were meeting outside the city gates on the Sabbath down by the river that were Jewish for prayer. So there's a group of people that were meeting down there, and so on the Sabbath, Paul and his traveling companions, all right, um, which at the time was Silas and Timothy and a few other guys, they, they walked out the city gates down to the river and expected to find a gathering of Jewish people for prayer because it was the Sabbath. But instead what they found was a group of women down by the river just talking and spending time together, probably doing wash, gathering water, those kind of things. But Paul finds this group of women and so he sits down and he begins to speak to them. Basically, he just begins to tell them about Jesus. And there was a woman in that group by the name of Lydia, all right? And Lydia's kind of a, she's a famous uh, person in the New Testament because she's very influential, very strategic. But Paul begins to talk to her in particular about Jesus. And Acts chapter 16 says that Lydia, um, who was a dealer in purple cloth, which means she was a salesman of sorts and a saleswoman of sorts, and um, began to tell her about Jesus. And God stirred her heart, right? And she responded to Paul's teaching about Jesus accepted Christ as her Savior, had her whole family baptized, and then made Paul and all of his traveling companions come and stay at her house with her family. And the church in Philippi was born in her living room, or whatever those rooms looked like, right? Clay and dirt and sticks and stuff. But she was, the, the church was born there. It was the first kind of model of a house church in that area. And, and it's kind of interesting because someone was telling us the first time we came here two weeks ago, um, and we had our service here. They're like, man, this feels like we worship in someone's house. And I said, yeah, you know, it kind of does. We're in the attic. We've got a middle floor. There's a little kitchen. I mean, it just feels a little bit like that. And, and really, that's probably closer to the picture of the church in Scripture than anything we've created as a Western culture, right? Giant, massive buildings with gyms and pools and saunas and things like that and bowling alleys and whatnot. It's probably not the picture that was happening with the early church. What was happening is that people like Lydia were meeting Jesus, and he was turning their lives upside down. And so she just opened her home and said, stay with me. All the guys gather, and for night after night after night, Paul would teach in her living room, and people would just show up. And Lydia became the instrumental carrier of the gospel that launched the church in Philippi. Now, a lot of times we think that these things were all movements of men, but the real reality is that God was using women like crazy in the New Testament. And Lydia man, it became a, a, a central point for the gospel being spread and being taught in the area of Philippi. So... We've got this church that is now blossoming out of Lydia's home, and it's small, and everybody is immature. You've got to remember, these are all brand new Christians. There is no generational Christianity. Nobody's grandmother was a Christian. Nobody was Christian by birth, you know, none of those kind of things. I mean, if you were a believer, it's because you heard about Jesus, and you were probably the first person in your family if someone in your family hadn't told you, and everyone was new, and everyone was immature, and everyone was growing, and so you've got this little group of immature, growing, 
maturing kind of Christians meeting in someone's living room. And that's really the church and the picture of the church uh, in Philippi, the Philippian church. And so Paul writes this letter from a really interesting place. You remember a few weeks ago we were talking about Paul's, uh, Paul's journey to Rome, that uh, he had been imprisoned in, in the kind of the Jerusalem area for three years and nearly killed, and they stuck him on a boat, and he was shipwrecked, and we did all that a couple weeks ago. And Paul gets to Rome, and he thinks he's going to be able to um, see and have his case heard by Caesar, and for two years he's under house arrest where he pays for his own house. And, and you know, a couple weeks ago we talked about all that. Well, most scholars believe that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippians, from prison in Rome, from house arrest, right there, penned this letter to the church to let them know that he was thinking about them and that he loved them, and he wrote this letter right there from, from uh, his little house where he was waiting trial, basically in prison on his own nickel, um, and he wrote this letter to the, to the church in, in Philippi, and he did it for a couple of reasons. One, we know that the, we're not real sure what it is, but we know that the Philippians sent a gift to, um, to Paul when they heard that he was in Rome in prison. So we know that they sent him a gift. I don't know if they baked a cake and put a file on it or whatever, but they sent him some kind of gift, right? Um, some kind of housewarming, whatever. Hey, heard you're in prison. Get well soon or whatever. But they sent him something, and uh, he was thankful for that. So he was thanking him for that gift that they sent him. But as Paul often did, he took advantage of the opportunity to say, oh, thank you. And by the way, let me challenge and encourage you and kind of mess things up for you as we go. And Paul used these moments for instruction. And Paul had this kind of special affinity for the Philippians. Like he loved that church. And, and it's an interesting, in all Paul's letters, um, he really typically addresses problems. So he writes a letter to the Galatians, the church in Galatia, the Corinthians, or, or you know, these other letters that he writes the church in you know, uh, Corinth and, and Rome. And he's writing these letters and he's addressing issues. A lot of times, so word would come back to Paul. He'd be in jail somewhere or doing something. And they'd be like, hey, did you hear the church in Corinth has fallen apart? They're arguing and debating over who's the real person they should listen to. You know, some people are saying Peter or some are saying Apollos or some are saying you. And they don't even know who's in charge. And so Paul writes, if you read 1 Corinthians, he writes a lot of that letter to say, quit being ridiculous and start paying attention to Jesus. And, and he's correcting problems, right? He does it. But Philippians is a letter that's a little bit different. It's not written to address and correct any specific heresy or problem that the new church is having. He basically wrote it because he loves them dearly and he wants to give them his best. And so when we read the book of Philippians, what we're getting is sort of Paul's love picture for a group of people that he had a special affinity for, like a deep love for them. And if you were to pin a letter to a group of people or to someone that you love, right, what flows out of there is something different than someone you're trying to give some instruction to. And it's pinned differently than some of Paul's other letters. It's not an instruction book. Instead, it's a, it's a picture of love saying, as you grow, this is who I want you to become. And he writes this letter to this group of young believers in Philippi to basically challenge their notion about living. That waking up and drawing breath is not really what it means to live. That somewhere along the way, whether in life or death, if we find joy and courage, sacrifice and obedience and humility, right? And we do it all, whether life or death, for the glory of God so that God can be glorified in us. We'll redefine what we think about when it comes to the idea of being alive. So all that to say this is what Paul begins to write to this small church. Now, each week we'll do something a little bit different. We may kind of walk through all the verses. I may pick a few things out and pay special attention to some things. But, but we're going to look at all these verses and all these words together um, as we really unpack that. But it's important to have that background because 
Scripture, and I always say this, Scripture in context makes a huge difference. We have to understand what we're reading and why we're reading it. So this is where Paul is. This is what he's writing. And this is how he begins to introduce his letter. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And I'll just kind of pull a few things out, and then I'm going to go back and show you a few things I want you to remember. So Paul says this, and he introduces a lot of his letters this way. Because you've got to remember, these are uh, our letters that are being hand-carried, and there were forgeries and all kinds of things going on. And so Paul would pin something on parchment. On a scroll, he'd take it to the church, and the church would then read it, and they would hold on to it. They didn't have dozens and dozens of Bibles laying around or dozens and dozens of pictures of scrolls. They had one, and it would come as a letter, and they would gather together, and they would read it, and they would read it, and they would read it, and they would reread it, and they would reread it over and over and over again. If the church was big enough, and there were multiple churches in the city, they would pass it around. And so Paul's letters were important. His introduction was important because the church needed to know where it came from. And when it came from Paul, for the church in Philippi especially, it made a huge difference because this was the guy. This was the man who brought us this message in the first place. I mean, he's like our spiritual father on some level. So receiving a letter was a huge deal because you couldn't drop it in the mail. Someone had to jump on a horse or whatever they did and, and ride it down. And it came from Rome 600 miles all the way to the church and Philippi, and can you imagine when those folks got a letter? When you were a kid and you got a letter in the mail, I mean, that was like the biggest deal ever, right? My kids still check the mail thinking they're going to get something. But imagine how, what a difference a letter was when it showed up nowadays. I mean, when you get a, in, in those days, when you get a letter, you know, hand-delivered by a guy that's been writing for a month and a half, two months, I mean, that's a huge deal. So this is what Paul starts off when he says, uh, and he kind of introduces this letter to, uh, to this little small huddled-together group of believers. He says, Paul and Timothy, right, because Paul also included his sort of uh, apprentice Timothy in a lot of things. Paul wrote this letter from prison, so we know that Timothy didn't pin it with him, but Paul includes Timothy in a lot of his letters to demonstrate Timothy's authority because Paul is handing off a lot of the leadership of the church to Timothy. And so oftentimes Paul includes Timothy in these things so the people will go, oh, yeah, yeah, Timothy, I remember him, he was there, you know, and he, his words matter, you know. And so Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, the leaders of the church, <clears throat> grace and peace to you from our God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know this letter was written to the church in Philippi, it's very clear, and Paul addresses them as saints, and, and I want to kind of give you a quick little definition of this, because I think it's important, not that it matters too much, but that it's kind of important, because in our Western kind of culture, we have a really different understanding of this idea and, and word um, of saints, because we have so much of an attachment to its kind of Catholic roots and influence, but when Paul writes the word saints, he's actually really using a Greek word that's, that's hygos, which means um, holy ones, which really translates as separated ones. It means to be set apart. And I've talked about holiness before being set apart. Well, this word here, what it's basically saying is that it doesn't have anything to do with moral purity or perfection. So he's not saying, hey, look, all of you who are perfect, right? all of you who are doing it right, who are saints, and we tend to use the word that way. When we look at someone and we think they're way better than we are, we're like, man, that, that woman is a saint. And usually we say it because she puts up with him, right? So it's like you're in a marriage and your husband's kind of whatever, he's crazy and he's a lot of work. I mean, you know, that woman is a saint, right? Because we, we, we equate it to some kind of moral perfection or at least moral aptitude that's like, man, she is better than I am or he is better than I am and, and morally they have... I just can't believe it. And so that, that's kind of how we use it. And when we look at these things in Scripture, it's important to understand that Paul's doing something very intentional. He's basically saying, listen, to this little group of gathered believers, immature and growing, to Lydia and her household and all even the leaders of the church, he's saying, listen, you are saints. Not saying you are perfect and right and moral. He's saying you are set apart. You are holy ones. You have been designated, set apart, called by God to be used for a special purpose. 
So he's actually reminding them who they are in Christ. See, a saint is not someone that is uh, perfect and performed a few miracles and they get their picture on the wall. A saint is actually someone who has surrendered their life to Christ and God has said, you are no longer yours, but you are mine and I have separated you and set you apart to be used by me. It's what Paul's saying about he and Timothy. He's saying, we are servants. We have given our life over. We are no longer belong to us, right? But that word servant really right there is the word doulos, which means slave. We are slaves to Christ. So Paul's saying that's who we are, and you are the same. You are separated from the world. And this was a big deal because the Philippians, they drew their lines of distinction by who they were. They were Romans, and they were proud of that. And in this letter, you're also going to see Paul say, you are not of this world. So quit thinking you're Romans and you're Philippians. You are of God, and you have been separated. And Paul's trying to make a distinction for them to say, you are pulled apart from culture to be used by God. He says, you have been separated. You are saints. Verse 3 I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. So Paul says, look, I am so thankful for you. I'm thankful for you, not just because you're great people and I love you, but I'm thankful for you because of your partnership. And I really love this picture. I mean, I love this picture. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. But this idea of partnership that Paul shares with the Philippians. And he basically looks at him. He says, from the first day, right, the day I met Lydia on the side of that river and I stayed in her house with all of her friends and I baptized you and I taught many of you from that day until now where I find myself, you know, some six years later imprisoned in Rome, right, just basically waiting here from that day right until now until the day that Jesus returns, right, I find joy in you, and I'm thankful for you. So basically, Paul's going, look, from the moment I met you through my chains and imprisonment, through all the things I've been through, up until the day that Jesus comes back, I am grateful for you. Because why? You are partners with me. And this is huge, kind of an encouraging word for this little church. I mean, to be able to think, man, we have partnered with Paul. So we're going to pick that up again in a minute. But Paul says, I'm so grateful for you from the beginning all the way through now, and even until Jesus comes back. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, right? Since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains, right, whether he's in prison or I'm defending and confirming the gospel, which really, I mean, that's pretty much what Paul did. That was his life. He was either in prison or he was out proclaiming or defending the gospel. There really was no, like, downtime. He never went golfing or whatever. It was like, I'm either in jail or I'm at the temple talking about Jesus. So he's basically saying every day of my life, no matter where I am, whether I'm in some dungeon somewhere, whether I'm preaching about Jesus, all of those things, for you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify for how I long for you with the affection of Jesus. And I I love this picture because Paul says, the love that I have for you, the affection that I have for you is the same affection that Christ has for me. And I'll pick that up in a minute. But he says, I long for you in this way. No matter what I'm doing, whether I'm in jail or whether I'm preaching the gospel, you're my partners. And um, God's grace is the same for me as it is for you. And then finally, he wraps up this little introduction by saying, and this is my prayer. So I'm going to go ahead and tell, we always end in prayer. Well, Paul starts it off. He says, I want to tell you what I pray for you basically every day, that your love may abound or may grow um, more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, right? So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. He says, look, this is my prayer, that your love would grow so that... You can make choices, right, and decisions that are guided by God for his glory. In other words, I pray that your love will grow 
so that you can mature and understand what it means to truly live. Now, I love the fact that Paul says, he doesn't say, look, I'm praying for you because I'm praying for your safety. Because being a Christian those days was, was crazy dangerous, especially in Rome. So if I proclaim myself as a Christian, it was a day that I took my life into my own hands. Because the Romans disliked Christians so much. And they didn't dislike Christians because Christians believed in Jesus and believed in God. They disliked Christians because Christians believed in the one they said was the only God. In other words, Christians said, the other gods that you Romans believe in, we don't believe exist. And Rome was kind of proud about the fact that culturally they were diverse. And so they would be like, yeah, we took over your people, you believe in God, great. You can worship your God all you want to as long as you acknowledge all the other gods that we worship. And the Christians were like, well, thanks for letting us worship our God, but all those other gods are a joke and they're not real. And the Romans hated that. And so being a Christian in those days was dangerous. And all those stories about persecution, those things are very, very real. So Paul doesn't pray for their safety. He doesn't pray for their comfort. He doesn't pray for their growth. He doesn't pray that God will give them money so they can get out of Lydia's house and find a new place to worship. He doesn't pray for any of those things, right, that you think you would want to pray for this new young group of believers. What Paul says is that I pray that your love would grow in depth and insight. So depth being that you would be able to mature in your understanding of love and insight, you'd be able to, to see it and live it out well. Your love would grow in depth and insight so that, right, so that you can make choices and discern what's pure and blameless and that Christ will be glorified. So he's saying, I'm praying this so that your life will be different. Now, this introduction is, is really kind of powerful because Paul takes a lot of things and he crams it in here. There's a few things I want to lift up that I want you to walk away with here today. The first one is this idea of partnership. And I really love this picture because Paul, he really sees the Philippian church and he sees all of these new believers, no matter how new they are, he sees them as partners. Paul recognized that he wasn't it. I mean, he partnered with the church in Philippi. And it was important for them because he doesn't see himself as somehow above them, better than them, um, you know, kind of bestowing knowledge upon them. Paul says, you are partners. And partners is really a picture of shared life. When you think about a partner, if you have a business partner, right, or if you're a husband and wife, we consider them our partners, right? We're talking about shared life. We're talking about doing things where mine is yours and yours is mine. And, and the Christian life was meant to be lived that way. It was meant to be lived in community. It's not an isolated individual endeavor where I go over here and I just live my own way. If you really read scripture, the Christian life was meant to be lived in community. And Paul understood that and he valued that and he taught the Philippians about it. He says, you are my partners. And as a church, I really believe this is one of the things that I want us to have as a huge heartbeat. That we want to partner with, with peop like-minded people and like-minded organizations and churches and missionaries and all kinds of people who love Jesus. We want to partner. We want to step over and around and push through lines of distinctions and denominations that we've thrown up and barriers we put up that says, we can't do this with you because you're from this group or you label yourself this or whatever name you give your church separates us because we know that you think differently about what it means to dance and worship or what it means about this. And my philosophy is if you love Jesus, we could probably have some pretty good common ground. And Really, the lines of distinction that are created between Christian organizations, churches, people, are really very much American. Because anywhere you go in the world, all right, outside of Protestant and Catholic, anywhere you go in the world, you'll discover that the lines of distinction almost don't exist when it comes to Christianity. When we were in Africa, and I've got dozens of stories of this from all over the world, but when we were in Africa a few years ago, we were walking up and down these um, 
city streets. And when I say city, I mean just really dirt road and huts and things like that. We were walking up and down these streets, and we were sharing the gospel with people. And we had translators. They were Bible students from a big city that where we were. And these, these Bible students would go around with us, and they would translate. And we'd go out in, in an individual and a translator into these communities. And we'd just begin to say, hey, do you mind if I tell you a little bit about why I'm here? And that was basically we would just share the gospel, and that was all that we did. And so we were walking down the street, and we came up to this group of, of Muslim men. All right, we were in a, a little city where they spoke a language called a Teso, which very few people spoke. In fact, all our tracks were in Lugandan. That was a mistake. You live and you learn. But they, they spoke a Teso, and uh, there was this group of Muslim men. And every time you encounter a group of Muslim men, you, your anxiety level would go up just a little bit, right, because they were very hostile to Christianity. So we, we walked up on this group of Muslim men, and one of these guys was, was a, a guy in this sort of circle was kneeling down, he was working on his motorcycle. Everybody drives motorcycles, right? And so, um, mainly because they go through all the bumps and the roads and all that kind of stuff. But he's kneeling down, he's, he's working on his, his motorcycle, he's not looking at me at all. And we walk up with our translator, I say, you know, hi, my name is, you know, uh, Trev Prater, and da, da, da. And I said, do you mind if we, we talk to you for just a few minutes and, and, and tell you a story, basically? And uh, it's all kind of translated, and these guys are kind of listening, and they, they know kind of where we're end up going, and, and, you know, my anxiety level's up. And I get into this story, and we're talking about, I'm starting to talk about who God is and, and, and why God loves them so much and the story of Christ. We've got these kind of, kind of stories that we lay out that introduce people to the person of Jesus Christ. And I get to the point where I start actually talking about Jesus. And this guy that's fixing his motorcycle stands up, and he looks at me. And you never really know what, what's going to happen. I mean, it, you know, when you begin to do cross-cultural stuff, you know, the, things are unexpected all the time. This guy walks out from behind his motorcycle, and he stands to me. I mean, he can't be this far away from me, right? And uh, so I don't know if I should just sort of keep talking or, like, run, but I knew something was about to go down. And so uh, he looks at me, and he, and he says in a Tesso, I, I didn't understand, but he's, he said a question, Tesso, my translator said, he wants to know if you're a, a believer. And I said, I said, yes. And he leaned in, and he kissed me, right, a man kiss, right on the cheek, and he put his arms around me, and he said, brother, right? put his arms back down, went back, started working on his motorcycle, and I finished the, the kind of uh, little deal. And we had a couple of those guys that ended up coming to church with us that night. But the, the point was is that he didn't look at me and he goes, oh, man, what church are you from? Are you Baptist? You know, or whatever. I mean, those are the questions we typically ask each other. Really, I go to church, where do you go? All he cared about, the fact that he was a follower of Christ, which made him and I brothers, and apparently meant we kiss each other. <laughs> Start doing that more often around here. But what I see is this picture of partnership. And I want to be a church, and I feel like our heartbeat should be that we live in a community in such a way that we open our hearts and lives to each other um, in a way that's risky and sometimes dangerous. And that we begin to think differently about what it means to live in community. And really that's what Paul's reminding the, the church is he's saying, listen, you are partners with me. We're in this thing together. I mean, as a church, we are in this thing together. And what we do matters. And so we lift that value up. The other thing that we see is this picture of love that comes out of 7 through uh, 8 or so. Paul had this love for the Philippians. I mean, it was an especial affinity. But what he says is he says, and I love this, he says, that I long for all of you, verse 8, with the affection of Christ. The affection of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm willing to bet, and I don't, I don't know this to be true, but I'm going to speculate and say that I'm guessing Paul didn't like all these people, right? I mean, let's be honest. Everybody's human. I mean, people wear you 
out at times. And they were young and they, were, they had other kind of uh, things going on. And we even see in some of Paul's letters tones that he used that kind of recognize that he was like, oh, you're making me crazy. Will you stop thinking these things? And I bet that in this community, Paul didn't always like everyone, right? But he longed for them with the affection of Christ. Which means what Paul said is that the same way that Jesus loves me, I long for you with that same type of affection. I think as a church, even a church as small as ours, community as small as ours, there are people here that we don't necessarily, maybe they wear us out. Maybe like's not the right word, but they wear you out. Or you thought you really liked them, and then you saw what they posted on Facebook after the presidential debate, and now you're not so sure that you can like them anymore because, you know, ignorance comes flying out at times, and you're just going... There are moments where you just say, I don't know. Or this one person, every time I show up at church, he or she just wears me out. I mean, they try my patience. They do this. They need this. They want this. They want to talk about this. They just, man. But what Paul says here is that he says, I long for you and I love you so deeply that I do it with the affection of Christ. What he's basically saying is that the same way that Jesus loves me, I love you that way. Because think about this. How many times have you walked away, walked out on, disappointed, let down the Lord? I mean, in your life, how many times have you kind of done the exact opposite of what, exactly what God wanted you to do, and yet God loved you anyway, right in the middle of it? That, you know, there were probably times in my life where I, if the Lord were anything kind of remotely sinful, he would just want to strangle me because I'm hard-headed and I make horrible choices. But instead, God, with this sort of love and compassionate, never-ending affection, loves me. And that becomes the call of the church, that what if we begin to love each other in that way, with the affection of Christ, that it's no longer about what I like or how you wear me out, but that I want to long for you with the affection that Christ has for me, which means I don't have the luxury to not like you, because I want to love you the same way that Christ loves me. It doesn't mean we agree on everything, but it means that the same way that Christ puts up with all my shenanigans, all my hoopla, all that stuff, I put up with you, because I love you in that same way. So Paul's basically saying, look, I have this affection for you, deep, the same way that Christ has for me. And then finally, he wraps this whole thing up with this idea of prayer. And I, I really do love this because what Paul says is he says, I pray that your, <laughs> that your love would grow. And of all the things I expected Paul to pray for the Philippians, man, I, I, we would think in our sort of kind of church-minded culture, I mean, I pray that God would keep you safe and that you would grow, that you would, that you would have some resources, and that you could expand the church and the church would flourish. I pray that, that these things would happen. I pray that you would be safe. But he doesn't pray for any of those things. He says, this is my prayer for you, that your love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? So that you can make choices that make you pure in the eyes of the world so that they can see Christ in you. Paul not once says, I pray that you're safe. I pray that you succeed. I pray that you're successful. I pray that you go to five services. Everybody gives you high fives. I don't pray for any of that. I want your love to grow and be authentic and real so that you can make choices that honor and glorify the Lord, whether in your life or death, right? Because that's what it means to be truly alive. And I really started wrestling with this this week when I was thinking about the things that I pray for myself and I pray for our church. I've never once in our whole life, and I'm very, I can be very honest when I tell you this, ever prayed that for us, ever, ever. It never even crossed my mind. I pray for a lot of things. I pray for that the Lord would bless us in a lot of different ways. Most are selfish, but the reality is that I pray for all those things. And the one thing that I keep missing is that, that God would just grow our love so that we could reflect him to the world. What if we begin to pray this not just for our church, but you begin to pray this for you? God, my prayer today is not that you meet all my needs, not that you help me pay my power bill, not that you take care of my cousin, not that you fix this, not that you make my heart happy, none of those things. I throw those out today. 
But God, I pray that today you would help me love more so that people can see you in me. If we began to pray that, if we began to pray that, it would change everything. So the challenge for our community, really, as we begin to think about stepping in the book of Philippians is this. If we're going to live in, in tight quarters and we're going to love each other the same way that, that Paul calls us to be loving each other, we're going to have to deal with some things that are difficult. We're going to have to live in a place where we say, I want to be partners with people that may not look like me, may not act like me, may not talk like me, but they love Jesus, and I want to love them that same way. We're going to partner with each other. I want to let my guard down and open my heart. I want to have an affection for you in the same way that Jesus has for me. In other words, I want to love you the way that Christ loves me. And I want to pray things for you that will turn us all upside down. This morning as we close our time in worship and the band comes back up here to pray, I, I want to challenge you to those things. To say, what does it look like to be part of a, a, an authentic community? What would it look like to say, God, I want to I partner, open my heart, be vulnerable and risky to somebody else. I want to have a, an affection for people the same way that you love me. Even when it's difficult to love them, I want to love them. And I want to pray, God, that instead of meeting all my needs, Instead of taking care of all the things that I want, protecting me and doing all those things and giving us a, a car that works and a house that does all those things, God, I want to pray that you would grow my love so that I can reflect you to the world and turn everything upside down. As we close our time in worship, I want you to challenge yourself to a new definition of what it means to be alive. Let's pray.